month I, will, I came to Hillcrest. Oh, we're glad that you're here this morning. That passage that Steve just read about the God of all comfort, that was the passage I, I spoke from on my very first sermon ever in Bible college. I love that passage. Well, last week we started what's going to be a long series on the book of James. And uh, we're going to continue with that this morning. Um, one of the things that Chris, Pastor Chris started us off last week with James 1. And um, one of the things he didn't do was he didn't show you um, what's becoming um, a common resource for us that we've been using with our series about certain books of the Bible. And that's um, a great video clip from Bible Project, the Bible Project, which gives a really nice overview of the entire book so you can kind of see where it's coming from and where we're going and because we are covering the whole book of James this spring um, we want to show that this morning now I'll just give you a little heads up don't let the name Jacob throw you off um, as you hear he's just there's a difference in the names we're still talking about James um, but we're going to jump right in and show that video it is eight minutes I'm giving you the heads up so that you can stay focused stay, stay with me we're going to come back I will come back um, but if we can, we'll just jump straight to there. Thank you. The letter of James, or at least that's his name in English. If you look in the Greek, you will see that his name is Yakobas, which translates his Hebrew name Yaakov. And that's why most ancient and modern translations render his name as Jacob. That's what we're going to call him in this video. Now, there are many Jacobs in the New Testament. Two of them belong to Jesus' inner circle of the twelve disciples, but this letter comes from the Jacob, who was the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, we learn this Jacob's story from the book of Acts and from Paul's letters. After Peter moved on from Jerusalem to go start new churches, Jesus' half-brother Jacob rose to prominence as a leader in the mother church in Jerusalem. It was made up mostly of Messianic or Christian Jews. This was the first Christian community ever, and we know that it fell on hard times during the 20 years that Jacob was its leader. There was a famine that led to great poverty in the region, and these Messianic Jews were being persecuted by Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. But through it all, Jacob was known as a pillar of the Jerusalem church. He was also known as a peacemaker who led with wisdom and courage until he was tragically murdered. And in this book, we have the legacy of Jacob's teaching and wisdom condensed into a short and very powerful work. The book begins like a letter. He greets all the Messianic Jews who are living outside the land of Israel. But this does not read like one of Paul's letters where he addresses specific problems in one local church. Rather, this book is a summary of Jacob's sage wisdom for any and every community of Jesus' followers. And Jacob's goal isn't to teach new theological information. Rather, he wants to get in your business and challenge how you live. Jacob's wisdom has been heavily influenced by two sources. The first is Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of God, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which he's constantly echoing and quoting in the book. The second key influence is the biblical wisdom book of Proverbs, especially the poems in Proverbs 1 through 9. Jacob literally grew up with Jesus and with the book of Proverbs, and so now his own teaching sounds like them. It's stamped by their language and imagery. The book consists of short, challenging wisdom speeches that are full of metaphors and easy-to-memorize one-liners. And in essence, Jacob is calling the Messianic community to become truly wise by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
The body of the book is in chapters 2 through 5, which consist of 12 short teachings that call God's people to wholehearted devotion to the way of Jesus. And altogether, they don't develop one main idea in a linear way. Each teaching kind of stands alone and concludes with a catchy one-liner. But all of these teachings are connected through key repeated words and themes. It's really cool. At the opening of the book's body, there are two teachings. First, about favoritism and love. Jacob exposes how we tend to show favor to people who can benefit us, and we neglect people who can't, usually because they're needy. Jacob says this is the opposite of love as Jesus defined it. He goes on to show what genuine faith does and does not look like. So if someone says that they have faith in God, but neglects people who are needy or poor, this person's faith is dead, he says. Their actions betray what they say they believe, and genuine faith always results in obedience to Jesus' teachings. Now, scattered throughout the body of the book, we find three different places where Jacob develops Jesus' own teaching about our words. So, with the same mouth, we unleash pain upon people and then go offer praise to God. So messed up. And also, we judge people and then go talk badly about them behind their backs. And we also all tend to distort the truth to our own advantage. How we talk about people opens up a window into our hearts and our core values. Our words tell the real truth about our character. Jacob also believes that God's kingdom community, as Jesus taught about it, is the kind of place where the divisions created by wealth and social status are dismantled. So he warns first about the arrogance that wealth can create in people who believe it will be around forever. He says, no, your wealth will one day rot just like you. In contrast, God's people are to live with patience and hope for Jesus' return to set all things right. And this should inspire a life of faith-filled prayer. Now, this part of the book, all of these teachings, they're so powerful, and there's way more than we have time for in this video. But seriously, read all of them and slowly. Now, placed in front of these 12 wise teachings is the introductory chapter. It's a flowing stream of wise teachings and one-liners, and they're designed to sum up the main ideas of the entire book. This chapter actually introduces you to all the key words and themes that you're going to meet in chapters 2 through 5. Jacob opens by saying that he knows from personal experience, life is hard. He was martyred, after all, not long after writing this letter. But he believes that life's trials and hardships are actually paradoxical gifts that can produce endurance and shape our character. God can do amazing work inside of us in the midst of suffering and help us become perfect and complete. Now, that word perfect, it's really important for Jacob. He repeats it seven times in the book. In biblical Hebrew and in Greek, this word refers to wholeness. It means living a completely integrated life where your actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs that you've received from Jesus. Jacob knows that most of us actually live as fractured people with big inconsistencies in our character. We are all more compromised than we want to admit. However, God is on a mission to restore fractured people to make them whole. And it begins with wisdom, the ability to see my hardships through a new perspective. God will generously give this kind of wisdom to people who ask for it in faith without doubting God's character. And when we realize our humble and frail place before God, we are forced to choose between anxiety or trust. 
And true wisdom means choosing to believe that God is good despite my circumstances. So if it's poverty that's forcing you into hard times in life, Jacob says, try and view it as a gift that forces you to trust in God alone. And besides, wealth is fleeting. It's all going to pass away like wildflowers in the summer heat. And so when we do fall into hard times, don't accuse God. Rather, let your circumstances teach you what Jesus taught about God's character, that the Father is generous, that he's there to meet us in our pain, and that he's trustworthy. It's this God who, through Jesus, has given us new birth to become new kinds of humans who can face their suffering with total trust in the Father, just like Jesus did. And this new humanity is something we discover when we not only listen to God's word, but do what it says. Jacob calls God's word here the perfect Torah of freedom. He's referring here to the greatest command of the Torah as passed on to us through Jesus, that he freed us to love God and love our neighbor. And Jacob shows practically what that kind of love looks like. It means speaking to others in a kind and loving way. It means serving the poor. And it means living with wholehearted devotion to God alone. Now you can see how this opening chapter contains all the key words and ideas explored more deeply in the 12 teachings of chapters 2 through 5. Jacob immersed himself in the wisdom of Jesus and of the Proverbs, and he's given us a great gift in this book of his own wisdom. This is a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. And that is what the book of James, or Jacob, is all about. Oof, you made it. A beautifully crafted punch in the gut. How's that? Well, you can see by that middle section that Pastor Chris had his work cut out for him just doing the introduction last week, because although there's lots of great, neat, tidy little sections after that, there was a lot to cover in that introduction. I'm going to give you in one minute um, what Chris told us last week. If you want to watch this again, by the way, or if you want to print out the printable and follow along as we go through the series, go to thebibleproject.com and look under James and you'll find it. So Chris's start for us in chapter one, uh, asking the question, what does it take to be an apprentice, an apprentice who will become like the master? Number one, commitment. Are you all in? Number two, focus. Are you taking it easy? Number three, trust. Are you trusting God or yourself? Number four, practice. What will you work on this week? So that was a good start to James. There was just that one last thing that I was kind of a little uncomfortable with. It just bothered me a little bit, I have to tell you, Chris. Um, the point number four, the practice. What will you work on this week? Like, Chris really wants us to work on something every week. Oh, you were serious. Well, I, I have this little trick. Something's bothering me, and I feel a little bit uncomfortable or unhappy. I just try to think of nice things. Sleeping in late on a Saturday morning. Kids doing chores without thousands of warnings. Silver white winters that melt into spring. Oh, please melt. These are a few of my favorite things. Sewing and quilting without any mending. Going on holidays without bills pending. Tropical getaways without the kids. These are a few of my favorite things. Gr
brandy, iced sugar-free latte with soy milk, chocolate and cheesecake and pizza without guilt, brown paper packages and diamond rings. These are a few of my favorite things. When the kids fight, when the trash stinks, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things and then I don't feel so bad. Ah, your favorite things. I bet you have some favorite things, too, that weren't on my list. Do you know that we live in a culture of preference? We have our favorite tastes, our favorite coffee combos, our favorite clothes, favorite TV programs, genres of movies and books, your favorite travel mug, your, your favorite search engine, your favorite smartphone brand, and your favorite apps, your favorite sports teams in every sport and division, your favorite pizza place, your favorite parking spot at the grocery store. Personal preference is king. Not only can you have your cup of coffee now with any kind of milk or cream or whipped air that you can dream up, but Starbucks will also let you choose the exact temperature of your coffee drink. Oof. And we can't forget we have our favorite people. You know those ones. When you see them, you just want to hug them. Your nieces and nephews, maybe your grandchildren, your BFF, whoever it is, you just love them. Well, I would dare to say that there has never in history been a culture more consumed by our own individual, individual preferences, tastes, outlets for personal expression, really a cultural that's, culture that's completely consumed with ourselves than the one that we're living in right now in the Western world. Favoritism. It puts all the focus on me. What do I want? What do I like? What do I desire? What do I deserve? What floats my boat? You know that narcissists, narcissists, ooh, that's a hard one, thrive in self-expressive individualistic cultures like ours. And they appear to be the successful ones, and we love that, we celebrate that. Social media sets us up for, to show favoritism, doesn't it? Ooh, I can like this, I can love this, now I can not, not just like it, I can love it, I can share it. Ooh, I can see when somebody likes what I liked. Ooh, oh, look how many likes I got on that one. Ooh, look how many hearts I got on this one. Um, you're always being... Um, presented with an option. Let's pick this one. Maybe it's a picture. Maybe it's a message. Let's pick this one over this one. The danger for us in the, as the church, as followers of Jesus, is that we can become products of our culture and not products of Christ. Instead of becoming apprentices to the master, we just get sucked in by all the hype. What does this have to do with James? Well, we're going to jump into chapter 2. I actually wanted the second half of chapter 2 because that's faith without works is dead. And I, you know, I would love to preach that sermon. But this is the one they gave me. So we're going to go um, into chapter <laughs> 2. I don't know why. Pastor Steve, you get the next one. Um, anyways, James chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. It's page 978 in the Bible in front of you, or you can pull your phone out if that's how you're reading if you don't own a Bible at home, please take the one in front of you home as our gift to you today. Let's see what James says. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those, to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? And are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? And are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Ooh, there's the one-liner zinger at the end from James. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We'll go there. So let's just jump right in. We're going to look at this little sections at a time. We're going to look at verse 1 through 4 to begin with. Playing favorites. Believers must not show favoritism, he says. What is favoritism? I'm like, well, we probably all know this, and whether we like to admit it or not, we all struggle with this in some way or another. Favoritism, the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. So think of things like being partial or partisan, preferential treatment, favor, prejudice, bias, inequality, unfairness, discrimination. Now, James goes on, he's saying, don't have show favoritism. And then he goes on to use a very practical example that was actually happening at the time. This is the example he throws out there. There was a, a, an actual problem in the church or group of churches um, where the rich, which was 10% of the population, were being, preferential, were being given preferential treatment in church when the body came together um, over the poor, who were 90%, as Chris pointed out last week, of the general population at the time. Some of you came in this morning, and when you went to sit down, there was a sign there that said, reserved for special guests. Did anybody have that happen to you this morning? Come on, just sleep with you. One brave person, one brave person. What, what went through your head when you saw the sign in your section? Come on, you have season tickets to that section. You've paid. Why is someone else being placed in my section? Oh, maybe, maybe we're just a little bit curious. Oh, I wonder who's coming. Maybe even a little bit excited if you're that type of person. I'm going to sit even closer so I can see who the special guest is. Chances are most of you were just annoyed. <laughs> what did it feel like? Oh, or maybe you just sat there because you were like, oh, for a special guest, it's me. They saved this for me. And you moved over the signs. Is anybody sitting in the preferred seating section? Oh, you're so, so honest. Oh, someone's pointing a finger. <laughs> Spoiler alert, there's no special guest this morning. I just wanted to mix it up a little bit. <laughs> Maybe you're sitting with somebody that you wouldn't normally have sat with. But what goes through your mind? How does it feel with, when you think someone is going to be given? Now you notice, I didn't reserve the front seat because that, nobody would have noticed those signs. <laughs> we put them at the back. But how does it feel when you think someone's going to be given preferential treatment over you? Well, this was literally happening in their churches. And so James is just saying, there's a problem here. Now, there was another problem, is that that 10% at the top, or the little bit of percentage below them that we're trying to get to the top, were using the church as a place to help them climb the social ladder or to flaunt where they were on the ladder. 
So James is just saying, stop it. Don't do that. If you're dressing in a way when you come to church that gives a visual of us and them, that's not right. Your heart isn't right. They can't change where they're at. It's up to you to change what you're doing. And so he's saying, don't dress up on the outside. Dress up on the inside. And he talks about compassion and kindness and mercy, and we're going to get to the mercy today. So don't dress in a way that serves your ego, but in a way that helps you serve. I thought about this because when I sometimes volunteer in the preschool room, I do think in the morning about what I'm going to wear because I'm just like, okay, I'm not going to wear a jacket or a sweater because those rooms get so hot. And if you volunteer in there, you know that. And, um, well, we're going to do some action songs and jump up and down, so don't do jewelry that's going to do this. And uh, you're going to be on the floor playing with kids, so just put your jeans on. You dress to serve. That was his point. Let's just take a little wee step backwards to verse 1. So that's kind of what he's saying in this section. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just go back to that for a moment. What does this whole idea that we don't play favorites show us about who God is? That glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Francis Chan is an excellent Christian speaker and author. Um, I love listening to him, and he's got this great series on James on rightnowmedia.org, and if you're not on there, talk to the office. They'll sign you up. You can get it for free. It's like Christian Netflix, and he's got a whole series on James if you're interested. You can go there, and he points out that the only distinction that should be made because of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ is between God and humanity. That's it. The gap is so huge. There's absolutely no room for a little comparison over here because he is the Lord of glory. He assigns glory. We're just the beneficiaries. Anything that we have has been given to us by him. How can we possibly squabble about the difference here when the gap is so huge and we have received so much? The fact that God doesn't play favorites or show preferential treatment shows us that God has a different measuring stick. We'll move to the next one. Let's look at verses five through seven. Chris used a lot of building analogies last week, which are great. I was really wishing he'd put on his whole ginormous tool belt thing so we could just see it. It was crazy. Um, what would happen, this is the closest I can get to your apprentice analogy, what would happen, so the boss is over here and he's measuring and he's calling out his measurements and the, his apprentice sidekick is over here and he's cutting as he listens and the boss is like 24 by 17 and a quarter and he's measuring in inches and the assistant is over here and he's like 24 by 17 and a quarter centimeters is it going to match up no not even close it's going to be all out of whack god's measure when he looks at humanity he's using a whole different measuring system than what we use when we look at it. So in verses five through seven, he goes on to talk about this distinction between the rich and the poor. The poor in the eyes of the world and the rich. So let's talk about the rich. James is not just attacking people because they have money. Um, he is pointing this out to them because they're actually in the context, here's the people, they have money, 
and they're ignoring the Old Testament instructions about caring for the poor. There they are, 90% of them are poor, and they've been instructed that they should care for widows and orphans, etc., etc., and they're not doing it. They're just there to flaunt and to gain attention. Um, so it's a matter of the heart he's pointing out. It's their disobedience, not their bank accounts, that he's concerned about. You might not feel rich, but you know what? Sorry to break it to you. <laughs> you actually are. As Canadians in the Western world, just to put things in a little bit in perspective, we're among the wealthiest human beings ever to have lived. And if you don't believe it, here's another little one. Globalrichlist.com, have you ever gone on there? You type in your annual income or your net value, if you know those types of fancy things, net worth. And it'll show you what percentage of the world has less than you and what percentage by income, what percentage has more. Here's a spoiler alert. If you make 42,000 Canadian dollars a year, you're already in the top 1% of wealth by income in the world, 42,000. If you're a single person living on social assistance in Moose Jaw, you're still in the top 20%, which, I mean, I realize there's a big gap there between one and 20%. It's still the top 20. Even our poorest, by our standards, are still the, we're amongst the world's rich. I'm not trying to diminish the needs of poor in our, in our society, in our community, but on a global perspective, as a whole, we are still the wealthy. We're the ones he's writing to. We're not in that other percentage. James' message makes us uncomfortable. He's doing it intentionally. Even in the very first part of chapter one, Chris pointed this out last week, that it's instead of saying, oh, we greet you and we love you or whatever, he just jumps right in. It's kind of jolting. That's what he's doing. I have my, our youngest is in kindergarten this year. And it's been very entertaining to watch as he's made buddies and little stories that come back from kindergarten. And uh, do you remember when you were a kid and you would choose your best friend by asking some really deal-breaker interview questions? Like this. What's your favorite color? Mine too! What's your favorite number? Oh, that's really close to mine. What's your favorite food? Of course, it's pizza. Oh, and here's today's clincher. What's your favorite Minecraft skin? <laughs> and then you know you have a BFF. That's just how you pick them. But we really don't change that much when we grow up, do we? Because we want to find someone that's like me. I want to be friends with me, really. I just, I'm such a great friend. I just want me to be my friend, right? We're very comfortable in our homogenous circles, no matter what you look like, because we all do look different in this room. But we still want to be with someone who's sort of like us. It's not just about wealth. James is using that as an example, but there's a broader principle here, right? He's given us the example of the people he was writing to, but the broader principle exists as well. So it's not just about wealth. We pick our favorites and show bias based on all sorts of things. Power and position and beauty and athleticism, appearance, intelligence, giftedness, political views, and on and on and on. We can find all sorts of things to say, oh, yeah, why? I kind of like that. In fact, it goes both ways. We both elevate ourselves sometimes when we show favoritism because it's just like, well, I really like me and you're really like me, so, you know, let's just 
ignore these people over here um, and just say, we're important enough to just hang out together. But we also do it the other way. We elevate, in our culture, celebrities. We have never met them, spoken to them. We will never meet them or speak to them. We don't know their hearts, but we love them. They're amazing, and when public scandal hits the news, whatever, it's a celebrity, an actor, a, a politician, a religious leader, whatever, we are quick often to jump. We will either jump to defend because, well, we just, they're just not like that. Have you ever met them? Did you ever speak to them in person? Do you actually know the, what their heart is like? No. Or we jump to judge. Oh, well, I could have told you that was going to happen. We become like professional judges, and our culture just feeds on that. We love it. Who I can decide, oh, I could, yep, I saw that coming. Oh, no, it's like way skills. You're just constantly, constantly judging yourself against others, preferring some, excluding others. Do we really have the power to judge someone's value? Oh, my. I think James is going there, too. The last Christmas before Kevin and I got married, it's 2007, that Christmas, I was flying to Morocco to visit friends for a few weeks. And in fact, it was at the Regina Airport before I left that Kevin first told me that he loved me. December 19th, at about two in the afternoon, <laughs> <laughs> roughly. <laughs> well, at this point in our relationship, I'd also found out there was something else that Kevin loved. Rugs. He loves rugs, carpets. Who would have known? So I was going to shop for a special gift while I was in Morocco, because I thought, oh, they probably have rugs over there. That might be a cool place to shop. So my friend took me around, and we went to the markets, and oh my goodness, everybody was selling carpets and rugs, and it was really a massive industry. And um, I was looking through, finally we're at this one store, and we'd done all the, the niceties and everything, and just looking, looking. And I sort of had in mind kind of what I wanted. I thought I wanted, which would be good. And I had a small budget, so that was very limiting. And, um, and so finally, I picked out, I was like, oh, I think pretty nice rug. And I keep going back to it, and I'm just like, that's a nice rug. Like, I like that. And I'm, I'm pretty happy, like, thinking. And I can just see the shopkeeper is just about going crazy. And as I'm looking at it, and finally he comes and he says to me, why would you come all the way to Morocco to buy that? <laughs> because I like it. Well, here I was. I was shopping in a lot of ignorance. I picked this one. I liked this one because it kind of looked like what I thought a rug should look like. Um, it, was, it was familiar. I had some way of kind of gauging what I might pay for this at home and thought, well, that, that could be a nice one. Here's all the things I didn't know about Moroccan rugs as I went to go shop. Well, the majority of rugs are made by one of 45 distinct Moroccan Berber tribes in the country. Each one has a unique style, and every rug is handmade on a loom. It's most often done by women in their spare time. They can take anywhere from 10 days to six months to make, depending on their size and how complex they are and how much time she has. And um, they, they do this test. Moroccan rugs are made from wool authentic ones. And uh, the way that they test is they bring out their lighter and they take the corner and then they go to light it, which seems like a real hazard in a rug shop. But see, a wool rug either won't light at all or it'll quickly like fizzle. Whereas the synthetic ones would, I mean, they're not going to pull the lighter on if they're trying to pass off a synthetic rug to a tourist as a 
as a wool one because it's gonna, it's gonna light up. So they have these tools. And there's dozens of variables that would affect the price of a rug and the value of it. So it's age, it's style, because there's old ones too. You're not always buying a brand new product, um, which seems strange to us. Um, you're, it's based on the design, the condition, all these things. So you could pay $100, you could pay over $3,000. Like there's this massive whole industry. And, but for me, I was just like, this is a pretty rug. I think this would fit. But I actually did buy, I did end up buying it's once again, it's still small, but here, here's, so here's the difference. This is what I brought for Kevin. Um, and, but there were things about it I didn't like. I'm like, why is the fringe shorter on this side than, uh, than the fringe on this side? Well, of course, they had an answer for that. Um, it's really heavy. Well, it's a wool rug. Um, all these types of things. And uh, I had no way of gauging what the value of this was. It wasn't familiar to me. I just wanted what was familiar to me. This one somehow still fit into my budget, so I mean, it must have been lower end, right? <laughs> but I was completely ignorant. We do this all the time as we're gauging relationships, as we're watching people. We cluster with our comfortable, like us. This is familiar. This is predictable. It's safe. We have no way of understanding the huge value that's over here in who we are overlooking because we don't understand all the factors in the equation. Aren't you glad that your value and my value is assigned by the God of creation who made you and loves you and not by some clueless rug shopping person? My opinion of another person does not determine their value. As people created in the image of God, they have inherent value regardless of my opinion of them. Even if they talk too loud for my liking or sit too close or just don't give you that personal space or smell a little bit different than me, they have value. Not only that, but as beings created in the image of God, I actually should be able to catch glimpses of that image of God in even the person who is the most unlikable or unworthy, uncool in my eyes, because they're actually carrying his image as well. James admonishes us to leave the assigning of value to God. It's a step in the direction of creating mature community of believers, and James talks a lot about that. Just grow up, you're not qualified to judge. Instead, we need to focus on bringing out the value in people that God has already deposited there. Let's talk about this mature community in verses eight through 11. He starts off with saying, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, and then he quotes, love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from Leviticus um, chapter 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. He's quoting back to that but he's also echoing the teachings of Jesus. Chris pointed out that he's not actually, well, Chris or the video, I'm not sure which, he, he's not actually quoting from the book of Matthew because Matthew hadn't written that book yet, but they were familiar, this is in Jesus' day, they were familiar with his teachings. So he's hearkening back to Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says this, you've heard that it was said, now he's quoting, from Leviticus, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now that's not the, what was spoken to them in Leviticus, but that's how it was practiced. 
well, I'm, I get to love my neighbor, but that means I get to hate my enemy. Jesus goes on, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of the Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Not even pagans. Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the same. James goes back to that word too, be perfect. That idea of wholeness, of integrity. Be perfect. So if we want to be like the master, if that's our goal, to apprentice and become like the master Jesus, we have to see others as God sees them or begin to move in that direction. Jesus, from, Jesus was asked, you know, so he, they said, love your neighbor as yourself, and then, you know, somebody comes in and they're like, oh, well, who's my neighbor? Let's split hairs on this one and try to decide, and he tells the whole story of the Good Samaritan. And essentially, it boils down to this. Your neighbor is not about geography. It's about opportunity. It's not literally, it doesn't have to literally be your neighbor who sits next to you in church or who lives next to you in town. Who is he giving you opportunity that you've ignored? Who is he putting in your path to love? Here's a good question. Do all your friends look like you? Do they think like you? Do they like, like, like all the things you like? What's at the heart of that? Is that intentional? Have you ever thought about it? A Bible commentary commentator Warren Wearsby, I don't know if I say that right, puts it this way. Oh, this is good. We cater to the rich because we hope to get something from them. And we avoid the poor because we, they kind of embarrass us. Jesus did not do this and he cannot approve of it. How do you practice the deity of Christ in human relationships? It's really quite simple. Here it is. Look at everyone through the eyes of Christ. If the visitor is a Christian, we can accept him because Christ lives in him. If he is not a Christian, we can receive him because Christ died for him. It is Christ who is the link between us and others, and he is a link of love. The basis for relationship with others is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Any other basis is not going to work. Look through that filter. He suddenly, James jumps into this whole part about, suddenly, you know, he goes from... <laughs> He goes from favoritism to adultery and murder and just like, whoa, where are you going here? And he, his point is this. He comes back to the law. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on just one point is guilty of breaking it all. What's he saying? Well, you know, um, the other day, my seven-year-old came home from church with, a few weeks ago with a great analogy that Pastor Laura Stackert had used with the kids' ministry, so I'm just going to flat-out steal it. There it is. There's the credit. Um, so if I come, I'm coming to the cross, and I'm just like, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm bringing my sin. Here it is. And I put this, I'm not sure if all of you are going to be able to see. I put this at the foot of the cross. And then in this context, I look over and, ooh, someone else is bringing their stuff to the cross too. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, that looks kind of like mine. Hold on, wait, wait, wait. 
Ooh, ah, yeah, could have told you that was coming. We can, we can all see that one. I'm just bringing my stuff to you, Jesus. Here it is. They're bringing their stuff to you too. Look at that. Now, Christ is not still on the cross. He is risen. But for the sake of the analogy, what does the view look like from the cross? What is he seeing? Is he seeing this short little, for those of you on the podcast, is he seeing this one little bin down here? Is he seeing one, two, three, four bins stacked up here? Here's what he's seeing. He sees some sin here. too well. And he sees sin here. When you look from the top, that's what you see. You see sin, because sin is sin. This part amazes me. Every time we go through a set-free weekend, I'm amazed by this part. And set-free retreat, it's, it's a weekend that we set aside to focus on learning how to deal with our sin and our hurts and our hang-ups and the struggles that we face. And we hold them in March and November, so you can sign up. When you start confessing, you realize, oh, sin is sin. I might be struggling in this area and never struggle in this area, but you might really struggle in that area and think that my area, that's an easy one. That sin is sin. When we come to the cross, when we bring what we have, our own baggage, sin is sin, that's what he sees. It's the only level playing field, and that's the closest I'll get to a sports analogy. It's the only level playing field is at the foot of the cross, isn't it? Because sin is sin. Now you say, oh, well, well, doesn't he see any difference? Okay, well, here. Here's the thing. So if I am a follower of Jesus and I am regularly walking in repentance and confession because I recognize that the path to maturity, there are mistakes along the way and that my growth is not instantaneous and perfection does not happen overnight. So I keep bringing my stuff to Jesus. So I'm, just, I'm bringing it a little at a time because I'm bringing it all the time. What does he see? What does he also see when he looks down? When he looks at me, he sees this. I'm forgiven. Christ lives in me. I'm forgiven. Every time I approach the cross, I'm forgiven. I've already been forgiven. Christ lives in me. Now, if you're thinking, well, I've never approached the cross before, maybe that friend down the street has never approached the cross before, and you think, well, I don't know, that's a lot of bins to carry, and I don't know if I want to deposit them there. Before you surrender yourself at the cross, how does he see you? He sees this. You're created in the image of God. Christ died for you. That's how he sees you before you've ever even repented. He sees you in his image. He sees the sacrifice that Christ made for you. It's not a competition in his eyes. There's that gap, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ and us. We have received so much. How dare we? How dare we after we have received so much mercy? How dare we not extend it to our brothers and sisters? So here's our thing, verses 12 and 13, the very little part at the end. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. That's the law of love that he just talked about. That law gives freedom. Why? Because hatred enslaves us. Love sets us free from selfish, self-absorption, from it being all about me. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy, compassion, or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm, and I'm going to include or exclude and ignore. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm not going to park on the 
um, on verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Just, here's a quick explanation of what he's saying. He's saying that a heart that is willing to show mercy, that's the kind of heart that will open itself to God's mercy. If your heart's not willing to show mercy, you're probably not going to be opening your heart to what he wants to do. Love and mercy do not equal tolerance. That's, very, that's a very politically correct thing, tolerance. Tolerance keeps us at a safe distance from the one who is unlike us. This is tolerance. Love and mercy require direct contact and even personal sacrifice. It looks more like this. Here's the hand again in a different way, and it ends up here. It's a lot more uncomfortable that way. Compassion for others, extending mercy and grace, does not require mercy and grace, sorry, <laughs> do not require us to compromise. We don't compromise biblical values by extending compassion, even for those who are very unlike ourselves, believe differently than ourselves, act differently than ourselves, do everything differently than ourselves, and we don't even like them at all. We're not compromising by showing compassion. There's a beautiful line in a Paul Balash song that I've been listening to this week, King of Heaven, it's a few years old. We are children of your mercy, rescued for your glory. That is how we speak and act towards others. So, but, but, but what about all the injustice of, I don't know, like how they treat me and this and that, and they did this. You know what? Let him handle the injustice. Mercy and justice both come from God. They're not in competition. He can actually handle them both. We're not qualified to do all that. This is not about being fair, making everyone the same. We're actually recognizing there's a lot of difference here, but we are equal at the foot of the cross. It might feel like a great injustice, or at least a great inconvenience to you, to suffer as you befriend someone and show compassion towards someone who is very different than yourself, and you would not naturally be drawn to one of them, whatever that looks like. Well, actually, James talks about how trials form a maturity in us, how God uses those situations and trials to um, produce endurance, how we can use them as an opportunity to move forward to wholeness and integrity, that perfection that he's talking about. We're going to jump to the very end here. What do we do? How do we actually do this? What does it look like to become like the master in how we view and treat others? Here's just a little snippet, and then we have an action step. We're going to love first. Love celebrates and compliments character, not appearances. Just forget about that part. Roxy Cavey, who's a teaching pastor out at a church out, out east, had this great sermon about get over yourself. I think it's a whole series. There's a good title. And he, this is what he says. As you meet other people, here's the only thing, the only thought you need to think. This person bears God's image and is infinitely valuable to him. This person for whom Christ died. And if their physical appearance, how they're dressed or whatever, how they present themselves is a distraction for me, then I'm going to work doubly hard to look past it and recognize that they are a bearer of God's image. Romans 15, 7 says, therefore, accept each other just as Christ accepted you so that God will be given glory. Glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Glory will be returned to him. What does love do? Love creates true community. 
There's a lot of eating together, that part's fun. But it's genuine hospitality, not just entertainment to show off. That's kind of like what those rich people were doing in those churches. Just, oh, come see how fancy my house is and how great of a hostess I can be. I say that facetiously because I'm not a good, I'm not a good housekeeper and if you come to my house, you'll see, just notice that. But can I still offer hospitality? Oh, I sure can. Love serves. Find a way to serve someone you've been overlooking. Love puts them, its money where its mouth is. Maybe it's time for a family spiritual financial audit. Just ask yourself whether you feel like you have this much or you feel like that you have this much. Are we being obedient with what he's given us, whether it's a little bit or a lot? Examine the attitude of your heart. Here's some ideas of what it might look like. And this, uh, some of these come from an article by Paul Fritz called How to Learn the Right Lessons from Every Situation. Doesn't that sound great? In, these are my favorites of his. Instead of concluding that someone is just a bum, use your encounters with everyone as an opportunity to think, thank God for giving you this sandpaper person to refine you more into the image of Jesus Christ. Maybe there's extra grace required. It's going to mature you. Instead of allowing your fears to determine how to make decisions, Choose to use scary experiences like reaching out to those who are not like you to teach you greater reliance on the Lord for your courage and your strength and your determination. Instead of allowing circumstantial pressures to cause you to give in to peer pressure, maybe to treat a certain person or group of people the way that the group is treating them, ask the Lord to use you as an example of how you would stand up and stand out in a positive way in that situation. Instead of turning away people who you do not like, allow the Lord to give you the patience to give people an opportunity for you to actually find out who they really are. Instead of growing weary in doing well, and some of you are here because you're just like, yes, finally, preach it, tell them all that what they're doing is wrong. Be like me. Well, you still have, even from whatever perspective you're at. Don't grow weary in doing good. If you're already, you're squawking in this kind of maturity, that's wonderful. Don't grow weary in doing good. Instead, fix your eyes more closely on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Instead of being content with your present friends, ask the Lord, you can still have friends. No one's saying you can't have friends. Think. Don't do it at the expense of someone that you've you, go, you know that person that you just go way around the grocery store to avoid or the hardware store or whatever. You're just like, oh, oh, I need something in this section all of a sudden. Are they gone yet? Are they gone yet? Don't do it at their expense. Instead of being content with your present friends, ask the Lord to lead you to people who can take you to a higher level of maturity by how they challenge you. In closing, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a couple moments to just talk to God about this. And this might be new for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, this could be new for you to listen. He might give you a word or a thought might come to mind, he might give you a picture, or maybe he'll, he'll remind you of a scripture. All those things can happen. If you're not a follower of Jesus, thank you for being here, and you can just take some moment to reflect on, on what you've heard this morning. You can still ask him questions, and he can still give you those words, thoughts, pictures too. So here's what we're gonna do. Um, we're gonna jump to that next slide, the first one. Um, we're going to take a moment and ask the Lord, who do I need to show love and mercy to that I have been avoiding? We're asking him. He might give you a whole group of people. Chances are he's actually going to give you the name of a person. And maybe you've already thought of them this morning. Um, we're just going to ask for a moment. So let's do that together. Lord, right now we just ask you, who do I need to show love and mercy to 
that I've been avoiding. Okay, here's the second step. Don't panic if you're still waiting. Some of us don't respond in that moment. You might get that name as you drive home or tonight or tomorrow. That's okay. You'll know what to do. Here's the second step. Recognize sin is sin. Can we have number two on there, please? Maybe it's not coming. We're going to recognize sin is sin. We're going to confess and repent and receive his forgiveness because it's this it's this simple, we're just gonna do the first one. Maybe in this situation with this person, you can recognize I've been showing favoritism or maybe I've been showing um, prejudice or maybe it's racism, like whatever it is, maybe it's hatred, maybe it's unforgiveness, whatever it is. I confess this. I repent of it and I ask for your forgiveness. Let's just take a moment, let's just ask him. God's word promises us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you just confess that, he has forgiven you and you're gonna walk on from it. There might be a lie that's been planted in your mind in this situation with this person or this people. Maybe you've believed, well, we could never be the same. We just don't hang out with people like that. I don't know what that lie is, but you can ask God, is there a lie? that I've believed that you want to speak your truth into. And I'm going to let you do that one as a homework one um, to say, what's the lie? And then you confess that lie like you would confess sin. And then you say, what's your truth? What's the truth you want to tell me about this situation, about this relationship, about this person, about this people group? Final one. And I want you to put, if you're taking notes, pull out your notepad or your whatever, your phone, your pen in your hand. You can write this on your hand. We're going to ask God, for the first action step. How do I move towards them in love? This is specific. This is the person or the people that he's shown you. How do I move towards them in love? Let's ask him that. Lord, we're so thankful that at the foot of the cross, there is no competition. We don't have to fight to be noticed or seen, that you see us and that you've poured out your mercy on us. And Lord, I pray today, even as you're stirring, if you've stirred something in our hearts and our minds about someone, some relationship, that you want to make a difference in, in this area, Lord, would you continue to show us that first step, that second step? Would you put them on our heart to pray for them? Lord, would our hearts be moved by what you want to do? We give you glory. We want you to be glorified in this area. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.